And the results are mind-blowing, really mind-blowing. Um, I went from, I was there for two weeks. I traveled from clinic to clinic. I, you know, sat in the hospital seeing cases coming through. And, you know, Jeremy had always said that mo they have success with most of their cases. And I was shocked to see that that was actually the case. Hey there, and welcome back to the show. You are listening to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast with me, Brett Hoss. Um, super excited about today's show, but before I hop into today's show, um, just a couple of quick announcements, and really, I guess, a little bit more personal, uh, if you will. But uh, this will be my second to last episode for this season. So this is season three. Um, I'm going to pick things up again in the fall. I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up. Next week, um, I'm hoping to release a podcast with Dr. Stephanie Seneff, which is uh, an incredible podcast on glyphosate and COVID-19. Uh, I think you're going to find that pretty fascinating. Um, but uh, part of the reason why I'm taking that time off is uh, we are expecting our third child uh, in about a month. And so really just realized through this pandemic and through lockdown and all of the other crazy stuff that's going on that I needed to just take a step back from the online space, uh, take a step back from work and really just... Um, get my heart, my head, my energy into uh, just prepping, um, you know, and, and welcoming this uh, beautiful little baby girl into the world. So that's what uh, I'm going to be doing for the next month. I'm going to be pretty quiet. Um, if you are uh, part of our Facebook group, you'll probably notice that I've been a little bit absent there. So my apologies. Um, but uh, th this is really the reason why um, I have a lot more to say, but uh, I'm not going to get into it here. Uh, suffice to say that it's been very good for my mental health, for family health, uh, for everything else that's going on personally, to just take a bit of a step back. And I know that in September, uh, when things pick up, uh, it is going to be gangbusters, and it's going to be pretty crazy busy, as it always is in the fall. So one other uh, quick announcement. I know that many of you practitioners, uh, some of you have actually reached out to me personally, um, previous students of the Digestive Health Practitioner Masterclass. Uh, we were all set to kind of get going at the beginning of this month. And um, some exciting news is that we have officially partnered with the Institute of Holistic Nutrition on this. Um, so after uh, some great conversation with them, uh, this is going to be um, a partnership with them. It's not part of their continuing education program yet. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we're going to be combining forces and um, promoting this together. And looks like, uh, you know, we just decided that summertime here is not the best time to uh, launch this program. Um, you know, as I just said, uh, a lot of people are taking a step back. We're enjoying um, going on vacations, uh, camping grounds are full. Uh, so I think people are, you know, after being cooped up for a few months, uh, the general sentiment is that most people are actually trying to unplug. And uh, we're going to be uh, bringing that back online at the uh, beginning of September, somewhere around there. 
Okay, so just keep an eye out for that. Um, if you're not on the mailing list, uh, you can just you know go onto the website um, and and join the tribe, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, keep you posted in that. Uh, right, so on to today's show. Now, today's show is all about homeopathy, um, which I have not done an episode on homeopathy before. And my guest is Ananda Moore. Uh, Ananda is the producer and creator of the film Magic Pills. Uh, you can check out the show notes for links on um, how to access that movie, watch the movie, and so forth. But um, our discussion today really revolves around the historical use of homeopathy. Um, what does the science say? What, what does the history say? Um, how does homeopathy work, which I think is a very important question, um, because if you've never looked at this, it's going to sound a little bit crazy, right? You might just think to yourself, like, this doesn't make sense at all. So we actually get into a lot of the sort of foundational stuff with homeopathy, how it works, why it works. And then we actually, for I would say the second half of this, we really get into what's going on in different parts of the world for infectious disease. So we talk about homeoprophylaxis, which is the use of homeopathy to prevent um, infectious disease. Uh, we talk about um, HIV in Africa. We talk about Cuba. We talk about India. And uh, we basically just take a look at what other countries are doing. And I think what you're going to take away from this episode is, um, you know, if you haven't checked this out yet, uh, go and check out what's going on in India and go and check out what's going on in Cuba and look at what they've done before um, with regards to managing, um, you know, outbreaks and infectious disease and uh, and, and so forth. So uh, anyway, a fantastic episode, um, you know, just in going back and listening to this and doing a bit of editing. Uh, I really think that you're going to find a lot of value in this discussion. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And honestly, it's, it's a pretty good, um, you know, from the ground up discussion on homeopathy. And uh, hopefully I can convert you if you've never looked at this before. Uh, you can also check out um, Ananda's website, riverdalehomeopathy.com. Again, check the show notes uh, at the bottom. You will find a link to that. And uh, as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please share this with your friends, your family, your community. Leave us a review, subscribe, do whatever you can uh, just to support the show. Um, yeah, we're uh, getting a lot of traction. We've got awesome guests and uh, I hope to continue uh, to you know, bring you more. So uh, with that said, um, please welcome to the show Ananda Moore. Hey Ananda, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Hey Brett, thanks so much for, for bringing me on and sharing the story with everyone. Yeah, and it's a really it's a it's a very very cool story. So we'll um, unpack that as our uh, time together unfolds. Uh, today we are obviously talking all about homeopathy, um, something that I've been very interested in for probably about a good 12, 13 years. And I use, not as much as you do, but I do use it in my clinical practice. So I've definitely not just dipped my toe in the water, but probably my whole left foot at this point. Um, but uh, let's, you know, I, I don't know where we want to start. I think what I, I think what would be useful for people listening to this right now is let's just really start from ground zero and work our way up. How would you define homeopathy like what is homeopathy to you so homeopathy to me is a relatively complete system of medicine uh, a lot of people get confused uh, they think it stands for naturopathic medicine or herbal medicine 
but it's a very specific form of, I would say, energy medicine. Hmm. And it, it's for me, because you said for me, it could go on tangents, but for <laughs> me, it's, it's the study of life and it mirrors the energy of what life is and its essence. And what we do that makes us different from other forms of medicine is we take those plants, herbs, minerals, um, even animal substances and bring out the medicinal aspects of those substances, which aren't always obvious um, and need a little bit of preparation, almost an alchemy of sorts to bring that out. Mm. Uh, and it's, and because of that has become a very controversial form of medicine. We basically dilute and what we call succuss. Uh, so we make a tincture of a substance or a trituration, which is grinding it into a very fine powder um, so that it can eventually become water soluble. And we dilute it in water and then redilute it and redilute it with um, what we call succussion, which is like a hitting of the vial or slamming of that vial repeatedly. And what that does is it brings out the healing energy of a substance. And though it may sound preposterous at first, I was definitely a skeptic when I first learned about this. Through my own experience, through the science, through um, what I see in clinic every day and the stories I hear from people around the world, I know it's, it can, you know, we see miracles happen on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Mm -hmm. Well, and look, we're, we're going to definitely get into some of those miracles because um, your movie Magic Pills, which is obviously the focal point of our discussion today, um, obviously just really, I mean, you flew to all these different parts of the world and recorded and documented all of this. So um, I think you have enough evidence to back up these claims, but um, let's, you know, so when people, so you, you essentially make a tincture or you titrate something, uh, you dilute it, you shake it, and you come up with different dilutions. So as far as I understand, this is what you mean by, um, you know, something like a 3X or a 6X or a 1C, or, or th these are different right. pot potencies? Would yes. That? Okay, right. So, so then um, would you say, I mean, is it fair to say that the underlying principles of homeopathy are really rooted in sort of tapping into some kind of life force or some type of energetic force that runs through all of us? Yes, exactly. And that's what I meant by it's an energetic medicine. And I think okay. the key thing I forgot to mention is that the basic tenet of homeopathy is that like cures like. And that's yeah. where the word homeopathy comes from, which is homeo, similar, and pathy, which is suffering. Okay. Uh, similar suffering or similar pathology and it's not a new idea. People like Paracelsus, Hippocrates, and a lot of indigenous medicines have this as part of their uh, basic understanding of how medicine can work. So perhaps, perhaps explain that a little bit more. I mean, you know, like curing like. So are we really saying that a plant, for example, or something that um, induces fever, as an example, would also help someone who has a fever to get rid of their fever? Is, exactly. Is, okay. Yes. So it obviously seems very counterintuitive um, to to most people. Uh, you know, like curing, like, and obviously, again, you know, you've seen this more than I have with homeopathy, but I know that it works. Um, so we'll we'll get into that in just a second. Um, why do you feel that 
homeopathy has become so controversial and has been put under the spotlights over the last while. And, and I just want to tee this up for you a little bit because some listeners might be familiar with this, some might not, but homeopathy has really been around for a few hundred years and through all of the different fads. So whatever kind of dietary fads, supplement fads, you know, Botox, whatever kind of surgeries, whatever cosmetic things we want to talk about, homeopathy has really stood the test of time and it's been there the whole way through. So there, there's that. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I just, let, let, I guess I'll leave it at that and, and just um, pitch my question to you. Why do you think it's been, become so controversial? I th- there are so many levels to this question. And I think the first one to begin with is um, the legacy that our founder, Samuel Hahnemann, created. Uh, so Samuel Hahnemann was this medical doctor 230 years ago now. Uh, from Germany, who got very disenchanted with how medicine at the time was practiced, and he really felt that they were hurting people more than hurting than helping people. And so he actually quit practicing medicine and became a translator. And over time, he uh, he started looking into all these old uh, theories, texts, uh, liter- medical literature. Uh, and he came across at one point this, I'm giving you a whole history of homeopathy to come to that, to your, your question. But he came to this notion that like cures like from a text on uh, chincona bark, which is where we get, um, we get quinine from, which is very relevant today as mm-hmm. we've been talking about hydrochloroquine as a treatment for COVID. Uh, and it's, uh, hundreds, of year, hundreds of years old treatment for malaria. And the question was, how, why does this work? And so he started taking it and he got malaria symptoms. And that's where he came to this idea that like cares like, or I mean, he rekindled that idea that like, like cares like. When he started practicing, it was in an, what you know is termed an allopathic world. And it was very polar opposite to what everyone else was doing. And he, he had many enemies. He ended up having to go from town to town, uh, leaving a, le- a legacy of enemies behind him and people who were against him. But he also built an enormous following. Hmm. What he eventually discovered was that he didn't trust the pharmaceuticals, the pharmacies at the time. He would send in a prescription and he felt that they weren't being produced according to proper instructions And to test this, he started producing fake prescriptions for substances that didn't exist. (laughs) And somehow the pharmacies were were totally fulfilling the prescriptions and giving his patients these drugs. And so he decided that that he was no longer going to trust the pharmacies and he was going to start making his own medicines, his own remedies. And he encouraged all the practitioners to do the same. So as you can imagine, from the very beginning, there was friction between the pharmacies and the homeopaths, and it just remained that way. Hmm. Uh, Hmm. After some time, homeopathy actually became more popular than allopathy, and that's the term we use for conventional medicine, and it means treating it with the opposite as opposed to similar. And it's, what was I saying? So the allopathic world eventually really organized itself. The American Medical Association was formed 
in the early 1900s, and part of their mandate was to do away with homeopathy very specifically. They uh, made it illegal for any medical practitioner to quote-unquote fraternize with homeopaths. People lost their licenses for being married to homeopaths. Wow. And then came out this very damning report called the Flexner Report, uh, which claimed that all the homeopathic hospitals were not up to par. It made a very strong case for shutting down access to homeopathy. And uh, the AMA was behind it full force. And uh, that led to really the demise of homeopathy in North America at the time. Yeah. Where, and we had homeopathic, you're in Toronto, we had homeopathic hospitals here in Toronto. Oh, uh, no way. I, I actually yeah. didn't know that. Okay. Cool. And the story is that Women's College Hospital was actually founded by homeopaths. Mm. Well, so, I, I know I know that the the British royal family. I mean, they rely on homeopathy. Like that's actually a cornerstone of their of their health, right? I mean, like I think that every physician that's ever worked with them has been a homeopathic doctor, as well as MD and whatever else, you know. Correct. So they were um, since the time of Queen Victoria, they've been using homeopathy, and um, He's now, he was, he's now passed, unfortunately, but their last homeopath, Dr. Peter Fisher, who's also a rheumatologist uh, and the head of the uh, Royal London Homeopathic Hospital, he, uh, he's interviewed in my film. So if people check it mm -hmm. out, they'll get to see who he is. And he was the Queen's homeopath. He, uh, he unfortunately died a couple of years ago. He was hit by a truck while on his bike. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, very yeah. unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's a long history of that, of homeopathy in England. And uh, Prince Charles has, since his passing, since uh, Peter Fisher uh, passed, he has become the royal patron for the Faculty of Homeopathy in the UK. Okay. So they're okay. very publicly showing their support. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think you and I have known that for a while, but, you know, maybe some listeners did not know that. And I really, I think it's good for us to talk about these things just to give people a sense of the depth and the history of homeopathy, that it's not just something that got popularized because we have the internet and now all of a sudden everyone knows about it. It's actually something that has a very long history to it. Um, so, so do you feel then, um, you know, let's get into, um, shift gears a little bit. Do you, I think an important distinction to make here as well, I'll just say it because it just needs to be said, you know, my understanding is that most people who practice homeopathy um, will all say the same thing and they will say that this is not necessarily a replacement for pharmaceuticals and for medical treatments. This is a system that works very neatly as an adjunct. That is something that is safe. Um, is effective and can work alongside anything else that you're doing. Like, is that a fair statement to say? Um, to a very strong extent, yes. And I think there are exceptions. Sure. Uh, and w what I have seen in India, for example, where there are homeopathic hospitals all over the place, is that the conventional doctors, the allopaths and the homeopaths work together and they can decide they have a strong understanding, they're collaborating, and they'll say, hey, this is really a time to let homeopathy shine. They're doing really well on that. Or this is a time for both together. Homeopathy yeah. can really help with the adverse reactions of different types of conventional treatments. Mm -hmm. 
so they can work well together. There is a point where when you're shutting down the immune system to things like steroidal treatments, it makes it a lot harder for homeopathy to be effective. Sure. Yeah. So there are times when it's not appropriate. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, I mean, my philosophy has always been, uh, I believe that at some point in the future, this is very utopian, perhaps in blue sky, but I would love to see allopathic and natural medicine coexist together. Because I think that they both have a time and a place, and uh, you know, sometimes um, you get hit by a bus, uh, you need to go to the ER. Like you need to have some work done. And um, likewise, if you're trying to prevent something or if you're trying to calm a fever that's maybe out of control, homeopathy might be the better way to go than a pharmaceutical, which is just going to shut it down completely. Right. Um, exactly. So, yeah. So, so I mean, um, perhaps this is a difficult question to answer, but. How does homeopathy actually work? <laughs> there are so many theories and people working on, on that aspect of it. Um, so there, is, there are several physicists, chemists, chemical engineers who've been tackling this question. And there are some very viable theories out there on how it works. There is, so to start with, um, we talk about homeopathic remedies. Many of them have been diluted beyond the point where, according to uh, the science of chemistry, there should be no source material left in that solution that we're giving a person. But what's been demonstrated now over a dozen times in different labs around the world is that we're finding nanoparticles of source material at extraordinarily high potencies or high dilutions. Hmm. So there's something there on that level. So it could be directly something chemical, or it could be that the nanoparticles are evoking a reaction, an energetic reaction in the water that they're in, or in the solution. And that leads us to the idea of nanobubbles, of quantum domains. And I'm not the best person to speak about quantum <laughs> domains because I'm not a physicist. Um, but there is someone named Dr. Alex Tournier who now has a lab for water research in Heidelberg in Germany. And that's, um, that's his theory because we need something that can maintain its presence, that can self-replicate, and that can um, survive dehydration because our solutions are eventually dehydrate on pellets. Mm. And that is the one theory that seems to fit all those requirements for homeopathy to work. So it's some kind of energetic uh, electromagnetic field creating um, that, that can self-replicate that is at the base of all this and that can communicate with our bodies. That's the other part that it has to be able to do. So, it, so it's almost, um, there's two things that I'm kind of, that come to mind here. The, the first one is, um, I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with the principle of hormesis or yes. the, the hormetic response, right? So like the hormetic response for listeners who are not familiar with this, if you introduce a very, very small stimulus um, that maybe you can't even detect, you're going to get a response. And if you keep going up with the, with the dosage, if you will, you're eventually going to hit a bell curve at the top. And if you keep going beyond that and you increase the dose, and I'm using very lay terms here, uh, eventually what will happen is the response is actually going to take a downward curve after the bell curve and it's going to go down. 
do you feel that like in some ways homeopathy is kind of like subscribes to that principle because it seems and the reason why i say that is i know from my own experience with different potencies you can actually cause more stimulation and with other potencies you can cause more suppression right correct um, so and yes so i i mean i think hermesis is a great uh model and especially if we're saying oh well now there are nanoparticles here there is a material presence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh but just to clarify hormesis means that you're getting an a diff if you're taking a medication at a certain uh potency or um dose when you reduce the dose it actually has the opposite effect on your system hmm. um so uh it like it can what can be a poison at a very tiny, tiny dose can become a medicine and actually uh, become a healing substance. Right. Well, I think that really like captures the essence of homeopathy because, you know, I've, I've used it in the past where you'll give someone something like belladonna, right? And then they'll go and look it up and, or arsenic is a good example. <laughs> and all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, like belladonna, like if I eat belladonna in the woods, I'm just going to keel over and die. And the same thing with arsenic, it's poisonous, right? Why would you give these things to me if they were poisonous? And I think that kind of ties into what you were just saying. Um, right. And in Hahnemann's time, those are some of our main remedies because those were the substances that they understood. So mm -hmm. they knew the effects that those had on a healthy person and they would be able to say, okay, so if someone has these symptoms, we know that this remedy in minute proportions is going to heal the person from those symptoms. Right. So, um, okay. So next question following that then is homeopathy meant as a treatment or as a preventative or both? So here's where I'm caught. Legally, I cannot say it's a preventative, but okay. I can point to many, so much historical data. I think we have some of the strongest evidence supporting homeopathy is actually regarding its use in the prevention of disease. Okay. Um, and so, so would you, are you legally allowed to say that it's a treatment for if I have a disease? So like no. If I, no? Okay. <laughs> Great. I can so, say that we're you know that that those have been so many of the limitations that have been placed on us since um, we've been regulated here, and there's really been a lot of censorship, mm -hmm. so that we can't even say. I can say you can come to me for this, and I have remedies that may apply to your condition, but I'm not allowed to use the word treat. Right. Okay. And that, that, that makes sense. I mean, I think we're all in the same boat. And uh, obviously, longtime listeners to the show, you'll be quite familiar with me banging on about uh, censorship and other things on the show. So um, we'll just uh, digress and leave that where it is. Um, can you perhaps explain to us what homeoprophylaxis is? And I know that Dr. Isaac Golden, I believe, was the guy who kind of coined that term, a very famous Australian homeopath. What is homeoprophylaxis? So prophylaxis means prevention, and homeo, homeo is, refers to homeopathy. And it's uh, the use of homeopathy in prevention of, uh, for Isaac's terms, was uh, chronic, uh, sorry, um, uh, contagious, I lost my word, but... Uh, like inf infectious disease? Infectious disease, thank you. Okay. 
Legally, we can't say that, everyone. So just so you know, we are not saying that We're this not uh, saying prevents anything. But nope. the word homeoprophylaxis <laughs> means prevent disease. Okay, great. And we can <laughs> point to the historical use and the current use of homeopathy in disease prevention. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about what's being used, done in other parts of the world. We can talk about the published research. We can talk about the data from the time of the Spanish flu, from... Um, you know, cholera and scarlet fever epidemics in the time of Hahnemann, where we have a ton of data. Well, and so know, we can yeah. always point to that, even though I can't say homeopathy can be an alternative to vaccines. Sure. And, and I think that the purpose of the podcast today is, is not really to say, like, you should be taking XYZ three times a day, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not what I want to do here. I more I want to steal, man, um, the homeopathy as a whole and just to yeah. let people know that there is a long history here um that has really stood the test of time and was used long before we had modern pharmaceuticals around and vaccines around and so forth yeah. so maybe um you know I, I think something that's sort of wrong in my mind anyway uh why don't we start with the spanish flu because i think given this current situation that we're in depending on when you're listening to this podcast we are currently recording at the end of June, and we are about three months deep into a lockdown because of COVID-19. Um, so a lot of people have likened um, COVID-19 to the Spanish flu, and they sort of said, well, it's the same trajectory, the numbers look the same, blah, blah, blah. So obviously, you know, the Spanish flu back in the day, um, I don't know exactly what happened with the Spanish flu. I don't know if people were quarantined or how it all went down, but I do know that they did not have some of the medications. In fact, pretty well all of the medications that we're using now, like some of the steroid medication, the hydroxychloroquinone, um, obviously there were no vaccines at that point. So um, what, what did people do back then, like from a homeopathic standpoint, or what did they do in general? Like maybe just share that with us and we'll use that as a starting point. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know what the conventional treatments of the time were for, for the flu, for the Spanish flu. But what we do have is we know the data from the homeopathic hospitals. We know the data from the homeopathic physicians that served in the military and the Navy. And we, we can uh, compare the data of the two and how many people survived uh, who were treated homeopathically and how many people survived who received no treatment or, or were seen at the allopathic hospitals. And we have hundreds of thousands of cases that have been collected from that time period. And overall, the mortality rate for homeopathy was 0.7%. Wow. So, so is this of infected people? Of infected people, correct. Okay, wow. So, and, and of not necessarily infected, but of symptomatic infected people who were hospitalized. Okay. And compare that to, compare that to what else was going on, like no treatments versus... So uh, compared to allopathic treatment, we're looking at, you know, the, it ranged from 5% to I think 30% in pregnant women. Um, in terms of mortality rate. And that mortality rate was flat for homeopathy. It was 7% across the board. And some practitioners had much higher levels of success. Um, and in fact, what people would die from in the end with Spanish flu was pneumonia. So what we're really looking at is cases of pneumonia. And that 0.7% is still better than what conventional medicine does today with the advent of antibiotics, steroids, all the medications and machinery we have now, 
of hospitalized pneumonia cases, the homeopathic response is still uh, much more successful than the Western medical uh, treatment. Hmm. And so um, you also mentioned the co- uh, cholera outbreak. Um, what, what was when? When did that happen? Uh, do you have Ooh, there's sort of... been a few. If you can be patient with me, I can pull up the data. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. I'm, I know that there was a really big one, um, and I. I don't so want to. Yeah, well, one of the really big cholera outbreaks was in London. Uh, from the um, there was a water pump in London, and it became quite famous because this is where germ theory originates from. Okay. And uh, this uh, doctor perceived that the cholera epidemic was coming from this one water pump, and he decided he tried to tell everyone that it was infected, and they didn't particularly believe him. And what's amazing is the homeopathic hospital, the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital, is just down the street from the pump. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I don't have the numbers at my fingertips. They're easy to pull up. But London lost a lot of people to cholera with that epidemic. And the homeopathic hospital lost very few people in comparison. Okay. Okay. And so, um, yeah, I don't don't want to throw any dates around because I don't know the dates. Um, I've, you know, again, we could, pick through all the data here, but uh, I think our listeners would be bored to death. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I just want to sort of bring us into focus here and, and uh, get onto your movie, because in the movie, you actually highlight a few different areas. So you highlight um, uh, Tanzania, and uh, there was a homeopathic doctor uh, couple who have been there for many years now, helping people with HIV symptoms. Um, I think you also talk about Cuba, um, I know that you've had personal experience in India as well. So um, I don't know where you want to start, but I would love for you to share what those experiences were for you and basically just what your observations were and, and um, what people are doing in those parts of the world. Um, I also understand, and I'll, I'll just, um, maybe we'll tack this on right at the end, is I know that Cuba has a, a quite a history of, I don't want to, I'll say preventing pandemics just for argument's sake, um, you know, with homeopathy. And I believe you were one of the first people or the first person to actually go in there and document that. And India is currently doing it right now. Um, you know, they're having crazy success with homeopathy as a prophylaxis. Uh, so I don't know, do you want to start in Africa and uh, give us a bit of a bit of insight into what's going on there? Sure. So uh, this couple, Jeremy and Camilla Sher. And Jeremy is part South African, um, but maybe you can't tell from his half Israeli <laughs> accent. Um, and he was working with a lot of people who were HIV positive or had AIDS with great success. And he thought about the AIDS epidemic in Africa, and um, he thought that he could make a really big difference there. So he created this nonprofit called Homeopathy for Health in Africa, and he moved his entire family, they're like the Brady Bunch, mm-hmm. uh, to Tanzania. I always say Tanzania, I'm trying to say Tanzania. <laughs> yeah, Tanzania, I, I'm South African, so Tanzania yeah. is kind of how we say it. <laughs> I've been scolded by South Africans on my, <laughs> on my pronunciation. And they created just a beautiful organization. They also work with um, 
hospitals, they work hand in hand. They go into communities, into Maasai communities where no other healthcare worker ever goes. And they're, they're basically providing the only primary healthcare that they, these people will receive. Wow. And they continuously visit these communities, uh, take cases. They have local translators. They're training uh, locals to become homeopaths as well. They work with a school in Kenya that's training a lot of people. And they also serve as a school for uh, foreigners to come and practice and learn. And the results are mind-blowing, really mind-blowing. Um, I went from, I was there for two weeks. I traveled from clinic to clinic. I, you know, sat in the hospital seeing cases coming through. And, you know, Jeremy had always said that mo they have success with most of their cases. And I was shocked to see that that was actually the case. Hmm. And what's really special about what they're doing is that they're working with a lot of AIDS widows. And mm. with these women um, lose everything. When their husbands die of AIDS, their community blames them for having it, giving it to their husband. Okay. And wow. they become completely ostracized by their community. And usually what's happened is the husband's brought it home, given it to his wife, given it to his children. Yeah, um, yeah. And so these women, they come, the families take everything away from them. They're ostracized. They're working and doing what they can to maintain their children and their families. And then they become very sick and no longer have the energy or the wherewithal to work. Hmm. And, and they're helping these women get back to work, get back to living and taking care of their families. And I think that's just incredible work. Yeah, amazing. And I mean, the footage you captured in the movie is, is uh, I mean, I, I think it says it all, you know, which is uh, just people that, I mean, they didn't even think they were going to make it. You know, yeah. they come back to the clinic and they're like, whoa, like you're still alive. You're doing really well. Like, that's great. You know, and that, that to me kind of stood out uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I've traveled a lot through Africa, um, all through Southern Africa, all through the East Coast of, of Africa. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, I think one, one thing that stands out for me, and I'll probably say this again at some point in the podcast, is when you go to places like that, there's, and there's no other intervention it's actually a very, very good environment to conduct, you know, quote unquote, controlled studies, because it's not like you're getting them to eat more fruits and vegetables, and they're taking a bunch of supplements, and they're exercising more and doing all this other stuff, you know, you're literally just walking in there with homeopathy, and saying, this is the only thing that's going to change. Mm -hmm. And let's see what happens, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that's a very, very powerful testimony to, to uh, what homeopathy can really do. And what they've done is they've kept track of the CD4 counts, which are the white <laughs> blood cells yeah. that show whether there's an immune system present. And they, they don't really have the technology for other types of tests like uh, viral load tests. Yeah. So that's what they depend on, but they see massive differences and those, those uh, white blood cell counts increase dramatically. And it was the, the hospital staff themselves, the director of the hospital there that I interviewed, were so impressed. They became patients of uh, Jeremy and Camilla's. They themselves went, many of them went on to study homeopathy themselves hmm. to integrate it into their work. And they refer so many patients to them. So it's an area where 
culturally, they don't feel threatened by homeopathy. They see it as, an, like we said, an adjunct, something to work yeah. with to support their patients. Yeah. Well, and it's it's so funny, I think, because now um, I recently, I might botch this a little bit, but I recently saw on the news that uh, Tanzania has essentially just done, like they're done with all outside treatments for coronavirus. You know, they basically said, we've got this under control. We've, we're just doing it our own way. And I, I'm interested and wonder if um, homeopathy is, is sort of a core um, feature of that, you know. I had no idea. So yeah, thank yeah, you yeah, yeah. They actually stood attention. out. Yeah, they actually stood out. Like I'm like, well, what happened was just, again, not to go too far on a tangent here, but they started testing using the tests that were coming in and they started noticing that um, I think it was like goats and pawpaws, which are papayas, <laughs> were yeah. testing positive for coronavirus. Yes. And they sort of said, what the hell's going on? Like this doesn't add up. And then they, you know, they started doing their own thing and started, you know, maybe traditional healing and whatever else and they noticed that the the curve was flat and everything was good and they said you know what we're we're fine like we're just going to go it alone and so i'm interested to see what happens there and and i wonder if homeopathy is a feature you know yeah Yeah, i don't know if homeopathy is included in that but i do yes i did hear all the stories around like they ordered all these tests and not uh really having faith in the quality of these tests they they gave uh, them all these random weird samples and uh they weren't very accurate, were they? No, no. Anyway, let's not get into that because I think a lot of people are on the same uh, tangent there for everyone else in the world. Um, but anyway, so uh, let's let's talk about Cuba because Cuba is very yeah. interesting. Um, so I'll just hand over the mic to you and go for it. Yeah, Cuba is super relevant today. Um, and Cuba is still right now using homeoprophylaxis to deal with the current uh, COVID epidemic. And it isn't just for COVID, but for other things like dengue and other viruses that they deal, uh, that they have to uh, cope with there. But what happened was that in 2007, there was a very large hurricane that hit the eastern coast of Cuba. And there is a disease in a lot of tropical countries called leptospirosis. We actually hear, most vets will know what I'm talking about because we vaccinate animals here for leptospirosis. And it's a spirochete, which is a type of bacteria similar to Lyme disease. Um, And it has a very high mortality rate, which can be up to 10% mortality rate of those infected. It's hard to diagnose. It looks like a ton of other diseases and they were having very increased levels. This spreads through standing water. So you can imagine when there's a hurricane, homes are destroyed, water is everywhere. There's no way for people to avoid standing water in contact with this water mm-hmm. uh, that's been contaminated. So the Finley Institute, which is a pharmaceutical company out of Cuba, whose sole purpose in life is to prevent disease, and they've mostly done that through vaccine production, was star- is the only place in the world that makes the human vaccine for leptospirosis. And what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by human? Okay, so just a vaccine for human beings. Correct, as opposed okay, to for okay. animals. Okay, got it. Yeah. And they didn't have enough vaccine for that community, They also didn't have, uh, well, the other problem with a vaccine is that it takes months to incur immunity. It needs cold transportation and it requires two doses that are months apart. So they were 
trying to find a solution and they had been doing research into homeopathy and thought this might be the time to implement it. Let's see what happens. We don't have many other choices. They isolated the bacteria from the area and they made a homeopathic remedy from that bacteria. Hmm. And in a matter of two weeks, they got that to almost 2 million people. And later they reached uh, 2.3 million people. And lo and behold, the rates of the disease plummeted to below historical levels. <laughs> the next year, this is what's really astounding. The next year, the entire island was hit with hurricanes. It was the worst year on record for Cuba uh, in terms of weather events. And so now it was like we had a control and the rest of the country had an increase in almost 30% of leptospirosis. And the area that had had the intervention the previous year uh, had a drop of almost, of over eighty percent in wow. cases. So, our, so I I, I want to just really get clear here, and I think this is a good moment to pause because uh, the burning question is: Did the homeopathics provide lasting immunity? That's a very tricky question. And what happened is that the Finley Institute over time lost funding for this research. Okay. But uh, I don't have any current numbers. I believe uh, Dr. Golden and Dr. Bracho are close to publishing something on that. Okay. But it definitely lasted for several years. And okay. if immunity reduced, it was, it was hard to tell if it was because of immigration. Ah, okay. Well, you know, I mean, look, like, let's just call it what it is. If something can provide you with immunity for several years, at least, um, if you consider what we're being told about vaccines anyway, uh, you know, vaccines will, depending on which one, but I think the most that we would get according to what people are telling us anyway is 20 years. But most of them are five to 10 years, and then you would have to get boosters, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't see that it's much different than that, to be quite honest, in terms of the length of time that we're talking about. But I think the other thing that we need to also highlight here is the safety aspect. You know, I mean, there is absolutely zero side effects. And the way I've always looked at homeopathy is, you know, you if you nail the remedy and you get it right for what you're trying to do, it will work. And if you don't get it right, it's just going to do nothing. Right. Right. You know, there's no other side effects from that. It's not like it's going to cause something else, um, you know. Well, it's it's non-toxic. And sometimes you do get, you know, adverse reactions or aggravations or short-lived symptoms. And they did do in Cuba a much, much larger intervention years later for an H1N1 epidemic. Um and they got the remedies to 9 million people at that point across the island. Nine out of 11 million people in the country took the remedies. And there were 11 adverse reactions reported out of 9 million, and they were all self-limiting and mild. Yeah. Well, and again, as you know, I think um, <laughs> I've used them enough on myself, my family, and in clinic to know that the I've never experienced um, those, you know, nothing that persists or nothing that yeah. is permanent um, in terms of damage. So, so um, another question then, the, uh, the, the, home, the, the actual remedies that they're using, these remedies, I would assume they differ from place to place. Like we're not, you know, we're using very specific homeopathics for um, these interventions in Africa and Cuba and so forth. 
So, yeah, um, I mean, Africa is very much constitutional homeopathy. And what that means is you take the individual's case, mm-hmm. you uh, collate all the symptoms that they're experiencing to match it to the correct remedy for that person. And generally, that's the most effective way to practice homeopathy. What we're seeing when we're treating, when it's about prevention, like what we saw in Cuba, you don't need to be as specific. And what we're actually, they were doing was called isopathy, which is using that same substance diluted and provided for to educate the immune system uh, for when it was actually uh, exposed to the actual pathogen. Well, sounds an awful lot like a vaccine. I'm just saying. Doesn't it? But, but yeah, anyway, I mean, yeah. it's very similar. To, and vaccination <laughs> and homeoprophylaxis were created at the same time. Ah, okay. Interesting. So, um, so essentially, and I'm just going to say this in complete lay terms um, for maybe some listeners who are, you know, whatever their knowledge base is. But if I like isolated SARS-CoV-2, um, at, you know, or a virus or a pathogen, and I diluted that enough and shook it and put it into a remedy. Essentially, that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, Correct. So, okay, perfect. So let's um, let's shift our focus to India because um, I think I sent you something today on text message, and I'm going to bring that up because I think it's very relevant here. Um, in one state, which I believe is called Kerala, Kerala. Kerala, okay, I, yeah. I knew I was going to botch the pronunciation. <laughs> um, 19 deaths out of 35 million people. And this is a state that essentially um, rolled out widespread homeopathic prophylaxis in the midst of uh, coronavirus. So mm-hmm. what's going on in India? Because I've read multiple reports from all over India. And generally speaking, they have a very, very low mortality rate um, for the size of their country. Yeah, I checked today. I think they had 11, I'm hoping that's the right one, 11 deaths per million. And we have like hundreds here in Canada. Hmm. Um, And India has a long, long history with homeopathy. They've, it's uh, part of the medical system there. There are homeopathic hospitals, homeopathic colleges. There are so many people in India who rely solely on homeopathy as their medicine. And there's even a Ministry of Health uh, that's uh, dedicated to natural and Indian medicine, and it's called Ayush. And the H of that acronym refers to homeopathy. Hmm. So in India, they've been using uh, homeoprophylaxis for a long time as well. When I was there shooting in uh, Andhra Pradesh, where they had used homeopathy to basically eradicate Japanese encephalitis. Uh, At the same time when we were there shooting, there was a threat of an H1N1 epidemic. And all over the province, they were giving people arsenic amalgam to prevent the disease. And that is the same remedy that they came to, the Homeopathic Research Council came to as the preventative uh, that they deemed was accurate for corona. And so what is it? What's it called? It's called Arsenicum album. Okay. 
All right. So, so you'd brought that up earlier. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I just, and, and more, um, yeah, for our listeners as well, because I know that ears are burning right now with the conversation and, and people actually want to know what it is. So, uh, right. yeah. And um, there was, very, we're, we now are fully stocked with our Sonicum, but it was hard to get our Sonicum for a little while in North America after India announced this. Oh, yeah. Okay. So is that what they were using, like pretty much across the country as, as a general prophylactic? Yes. Okay. Perfect. And what, and any specific um, concentration or dilution? 30C. 30C. Okay, cool. So um, India has done a really great job at, um, you know, because it, it's funny because when things first started like breaking out and, you know, going to lockdown and all this stuff, um, you know, you look at, at China and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into a COVID podcast at all, but if you look at China, you know, China just like blew up and then settled right down and, I, I personally, I looked, I looked at it and I thought, wow, like a country of 1.3 or 1.4 billion, and they've got a country that's in very close proximity that has an equal number of people. I really thought that India was, you know, something, something was going to happen there. I thought mm-hmm. that it was really going to become an epicenter and surprisingly, like not at all, you know, quite the opposite, in fact. And uh, turns out that um, I don't want to say that homeopathy was the sole reason for that. I think there's many other factors, yeah. but it is it is interesting to note, um, you know, in that article I sent you today, uh, they obviously had other measures in place as well. You know, so it's like we've got the homeopathy and, you know, you know and other things. Data so. As well, and other forms of natural medicine. And actually, there was a lot of controversy for the first time in India around the use of homeopathy and corona. So mm. they made this announcement, our Sonicum 30, then there was a lot of pressure and they redacted it. And then they, they finally said, no, we are going to tell people to do this. And they made it public again. Um, so there was a lot of pressure against the use of homeopathy. They even told homeopaths were not allowed to treat COVID-19 for some reason. I mean, homeopaths mm. treat everything else. I saw people you know, from cancer to asthma um, what, what would make this different? It was, I, 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 I mean, found that fascinating. Yeah. To, to be quite honest, I think it's the fear factor that's been hyped around what we're dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a huge part to play with it, you know, where, um, again, not to bog us down, but if you look at things statistically, we might wonder to ourselves, like, is this really the next, you know, this is going to wipe out like tens of millions of people around the right. world. Oh, well, that's not really what the data is showing if we now look back at the last three months. But if if we viewed it through that lens, um, I could totally see why organizations might go, you know what, forget about everything else. We need to find some like big smoking gun that's just going to wipe this virus out and homeopathy is not going to do it. You know, I, I can understand the mindset, but um, obviously that's just not what's happened at all. Um, no, and when we look at Cuba that uh, instituted a homeopathic remedy called Prevengo, um, which is a combination remedy, does not have arsenicum in it. Mm. Um, they also have shockingly low rates of COVID-19 right now. And there was an article in The Guardian last week asking why. Why does Cuba have such low cases of corona? Did they mention anything about homeopathy or no? Oh, no, of course not. Yeah. Um, but all the local Cuban publications are. (laughs) So, I mean, like, let's just get a little bit controversial for a second. Like, do you just feel, um, that this is just part of the general witch hunt against natural medicine? Yeah. And I feel that with homeopathy, it's almost more targeted right Mm -hmm. now. The FDA over a process of two years, uh, drafted, um, 
guidance document, which basically states that homeopathic remedies, which were grandfathered in by the FDA because the founder of the FDA was a homeopath. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, they're suddenly saying, well, homeopathy isn't safe. We don't think it's safe. So it has to go through the new drug um, regulation process. Yeah. And that is inhibitive. Like, you know, it can cost up to $300 million to put one substance through. And the annual American market for homeopathy is a billion dollars. Right. Well, and, and you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I've, I've like researched this extensively and I've spoken about it a lot. So I'm just going to say for our listeners here, I encourage you to go back to a podcast that I did with Sean Buckley from the Natural Health Products Protection Association. Uh, I forget the name of that one. I think it was called The End of Natural Health Products. Um, if you don't know NHPPA, go and check him out, nhppa.org. There's a ton of literature on there talking about exactly what we're talking about. And uh, long, long-time listeners and people who have been in this field for a while will, will remember things like Bill C-51, C-52, and so forth, which is essentially the strangling out of natural medicine through over-regulation. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's what happened with homeopathy. I mean, that's why Heal, I believe, Heal pulled out of North America. Because no, Heal pulled out of North America because of frivolous lawsuits. Okay. Okay. I, so I, I, I always, um, yeah. So I, I also, I thought that part of that was also because of the over-regulation. So they were just, you know, just getting strangled out. Yeah. In Canada, our regulation for homeopathy isn't terrible. It's just whether the pharmacies want to go through the financial aspect of having it done. Yeah. And it's, it's not onerous. It's not like what the FDA has done. And the reason mm. this is actually really recent because last week, it could have even been this week, but I, le- I learned about it this week. They started uh, acting on this draft guidance, which now has a petition against it, which uh, you know has not been ratified as an official document, though it's uh, the comment period closed two weeks ago on it. Hmm. Um, they have now sent letters to injectable, uh, homeopathic injectable manufacturers all over the world that sell their products in the U.S., and the language that they're using in these letters is so uh, fallacious and it's, uh, it's setting a precedent for them so that they can point to this. And basically what it says is, oh, you have Nuxvamica, which has strychnine, you have arsenicum. Mm. And so these products are toxic and they're not recognized as safe and therefore you, can't sell, you have to go through the new product uh, registration process. Oh, and and I guess they might pull you up on grass or something like that, right? Like safety right. safety issues or toxicity or whatever. I mean, you know, this stuff just like it it uh, it frustrates me to no end because we still see things like Roundup or glyphosate on the market. We still mm-hmm. see you know baby talc powder. Like, how long did that take to get off the market? So you know, all these other chemicals in personal care products and uh, cleaning products and so forth. These are all grandfathered in. Like most people don't know that they're grandfathered fathered in from the 60s and 70s and uh, you have to prove that they're toxic before they'll remove them off the market and here we've got quite the opposites where it's like oh we think it might be toxic so we're going to remove it and then you're going to have to prove that it's not toxic and you're going to have a really hard time doing that because and what's really hard is actually they've we've had the americans for homeopathy choice have met with the fda they've seen all the literature there's been like 
so much conversation with them and they know that it's not toxic. Mm -hmm. There is mm -hmm. no question there. They're using language that is inflammatory and just outward lies. Yeah. And yeah. they're taking what's called a risk-based approach um, where they're going to go after the riskiest remedies first, which is why they're going after the injectables because hmm. you know the method of transmission is the riskiest. Right. Well, and I can just tell you, you know, not to labor over this, but uh, one of the companies I work with, I won't mention any names, um, obviously, but one of the companies I work with, I mean, they've got fantastic combination remedies for homeopathics. I use them all the time, um, SAR codes and NOSODES and so forth. And uh, I haven't been able to get them for months now because you know every time I call them up, they're like, "We're still dealing with Health Canada. We're still trying. We've got regulatory hoops that we have to jump through before we can get them back on the market." So, um, you know, I, I'm feeling that in my practice, and a lot of the stuff that I use, I just I can't use it anymore. So I have to really, you know, but I can get them in the U.S. So for yes. all of the people I work with in the U.S., no problem. I can just drop ship them straight to their door in Canada. Can't get it. So, Can't get it. No, yeah. no. So, so do you? Um, uh, I'm going to ask you another question here, and and um, don't feel that you have to answer it, but I want to put it out there. This is a very hypothetical question. Do you feel that homeoprophylaxis and homeopathy could be as effective as vaccinations? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you that we have some very good research and some less great research, but it all points to around 80 to 90% effectiveness. Okay. Without side effects, what we mean, obviously we spoke about that earlier. Right. But, and yeah. actually with better long-term health than even unvaccinated children. And cheaper. And cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Like we're talking five cents a dose. Okay. So that, that's interesting. I'm just going to recap that for our listeners. So actually better than unvaccinated children. That, that's very interesting. Um, that's Isaac's, Dr. Golden's research in Australia, mm. where he compared groups of vaccinated, unvaccinated children, and those who had done uh, the, the homeopathic prophylaxis. Yeah. And there's this, I, there's this understanding that uh, these childhood diseases are actually really beneficial to the immune system hmm. and um, support us in other ways that we're not maybe fully aware of. Like, for example, uh, there are links between having had measles and a reduced uh, incidence of ovarian cancer in women. Yeah. Yeah. I've, re I've read that before. And I mean, look, you know, let's just face it. It's like what people did for thousands of years before we had pharmaceuticals and vaccinations. Like, sure, a lot of people died from infectious diseases, 100%, you know, poor sanitation, poor nutrition. There was a lot of other factors involved. But I mean, if you just think of it on a biological level, your immune system works by being exposed to external factors, right? And that's how you build immunity. Right. So, so it, it makes perfectly good sense that if you were to introduce something in a homeopathic form, um, you know, obviously that's way less concentrated than what you would find in nature, but that essentially prompts the immune system to, you know, step into action or it trains the immune system um, to be able to identify those things. So, right. yeah, so it, it makes perfectly good sense to me. I mean, I just look at it from the standpoint as well of, you know, and again, long-time listeners of the show, I've done hours and hours of podcasting on vaccines, so I'm not going to get into it here. Suffice to say that it's such a debated topic now because 
we are looking at things like vaccine injuries. We're looking at vaccine waning. We're looking at RNA vaccines now, which are coming onto the markets, which which have never been proven to work in human beings. You know, mm-hmm. this is the new type of vaccine, and yet or here an we animals. have, yeah, or in animals, exactly. <laughs> like they're, you know, again, let's not get into it. But but the point here is that we have something that is cheap. We have something that can be dispensed um, at scale very very quickly. Very we quickly. have something that is safe. It's either going to do something really really good, or it's going to do nothing at all. And it's, uh, it's like, it's going to save governments so much money. It's, uh, it's easy to transport. It doesn't require cold chain transportation. It doesn't require syringes. It doesn't require, there's all these things that make it so simple and so sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, look, we're talking the same language here and we're preaching to the choir. And I, I just think of all of this in the context of what we're dealing with right now. And, um, you know, governments around the world just sinking billions and billions of dollars into something that, to be quite frank, um, has a very, very low chance of actually working. And I'm talking now about vaccines, has a very low chance of working. And if only we were to shift our focus and look at countries like Cuba and India and what they've done during this time um, and open our minds a little bit, you know, maybe maybe we would be more open to bringing this type of stuff here. And, mm-hmm. and you know, um, yeah. So And so, yeah, just like back to Isaac's research, he please. compared the chronic illness rates of chronic illness between those populations and even like the uh the kids who had the homeoprophylactic programs were had less incidence of chronic illness than the kids who had nothing Hmm. Hmm. and by nothing i mean no vaccines and no homeoprophylaxis yeah, because there's been some interesting studies now, very recent. Um, I think it's one of the first of its kind where it's really looked at vaccinated children versus unvaccinated. And obviously, the you know what they came up with is unvaccinated children are generally healthier. Again, that's very controversial. But um, I do find it interesting that the homeoprophylaxis group was healthier than the unvaccinated group. That, that, to, me, that to me is quite interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, can you use homeopathy for chronic conditions? Of course. That's where I think we really excel. I think that's where uh, conventional medicine, allopathic medicine really has a hard time. They, they work to manage, they work to suppress, but they often cannot really cure nor stop the progression of a lot of chronic diseases. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you, you sold me. Um, I've uh, been a long time user, but um, every time I speak to people like you, my interest, um, you know, gets rekindled somewhat and I get more interested again. So um, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And, um, you know, the movie is, it's just fantastic. You did a great job on that. Um, so can we let people know where they can watch that? hundred percent. So I'm going to put that in the show notes, but you can also tell people right now. That would be great. Yeah, you can go to watch.magicpillsmovie.com. It's like five bucks US and you can watch it right there and then. And it's also on Amazon. I'm not sure if it's out on Prime yet, but it will be. And on iTunes and Google Play. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to put um, the links in the show notes to that. So just check that out down below. And um, where can people actually find you? Because you are also a practitioner and you're running a a pharmacy, like a homeopathic pharmacy. Is that right? 
we have a dispensary, so we don't make the remedies ourselves, but we, uh, we source them from all over the world. Okay. And you can find us at riverdalehomeopathy.com. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. Um, so yeah, if you are tuning in from the GTA at all, um, you definitely want to link up with Ananda if you're looking for homeopathic needs. Um, and yeah. we sell all over North America. So um, you can even find us on Amazon selling remedies. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I had a great uh, conversation. I feel like we could probably talk for another hour or so, um, but uh, our, we don't want to um, fatigue our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so watch the movie, everyone. Okay, the movie's where it's at. Like it's going to unpack it all for you and uh, you'll get a good sense of, of things from there. Um, any final words from you? Anything else you feel like you, we, we didn't cover or you feel like you really want to share? I guess I just want to encourage people to... Uh, Go behind the rhetoric. Don't necessarily believe everything you hear right away. Do your own research. And, uh, and that, I, I mean that in re reference to homeopathy, but of course that fits with mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And that was my goal with the film, encouraging people to go, ah, maybe there's another way to look at this. Maybe there is some science behind this. And it just requires a second look. Yeah. I agree. And um, I think it's a perfect note to end on. So thanks for joining me today on the show. And uh, for everyone out there, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I hope you go and check out the movie. I hope you check out what Ananda's up to. Um, check out R Riverdale Homeo Homeopathy. Check it out. Um, you know, there's if you've never tried homeopathy before, I would encourage you to seek someone out, someone out to help you. Um, but I can tell you from personal experience, it works like a charm. Uh, especially when you're doing all the other stuff, right? So um, thanks for tuning in today, everyone. And uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing, reviewing, sharing this with your friends, family, and community. And of course, uh, bringing more awesome guests like Ananda onto the show. So uh, thanks again, and you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are.